I was somewhat intimidated by what's happened this morning. I mean, the loss of power, then lights came back on. I, I thought perhaps that there was some grievous sin that some of us had committed, but apparently not. It's all been restored, and, and we're in, in great shape again. So thank you. I appreciate this opportunity to preach. I've been preaching for, well, 55 years. It does give me a bit of experience. But aside from that, I'd like to really... Uh, deal with some of the issues that we're going to be facing in the new year. And this is, of course, the first Sunday of the new year. And so I thought it would be wise for us to look at one of the Psalms. There is a book uh, called Learning to Love the Psalms, written by a very dear friend of mine. And he describes the experience of studying the Psalms this way. And I quote him, the Psalms are like a mine with ever new depths to reach and ever more gold to find. They reward abundantly whatever effort we make to know them better. Uh, End quote. The Psalms do speak to everyone. It appears that, that all human emotions can be found somewhere in the 150 Psalms, and they're often set to music, at least as a a royal hymn book in uh, the Jewish tradition. But even people who have very little, let's say, religious experience are are often familiar with with at least uh, Psalm 23, the shepherd's psalm. However, this morning we're going to be looking at, at Psalm 25 that I think has been overlooked as a a psalm that that people read and and really uh, recognize as as meaningful in their lives. It has been described as what's called a a sob, a cry of great sorrow. But in his more helpful commentary, James Boyce states that it's also a psalm that is great in its quiet maturity. And as we spend some time this morning mining the depths of Psalm 25, I'll be sharing some of Boyce's ideas along with others. Recent uh, commentators who have studied this psalm in depth as well as some thoughts of my own. But it's my hope that wherever you are on your spiritual journey today, Psalm 25 will have something to say to each one of you. And so we're going to look at this psalm through the lens of trust. It's a very important word to consider. And I'm dividing it into four sections. There is trust without shame that we're called to apply. Trust in God's instruction. Trust in God's forgiveness. And trust during adversity. Now, I'm going to read the entire psalm and then refer to various elements of it later on. Notice that the superscription, the the heading, is of David. And it says this. This is David writing this psalm. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. 
They all shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation, and for you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth and my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. And for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged brings me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of his troubles. Uh, May God bless the reading of his word. In the first section of of this particular psalm, uh, the idea of trust is there and also not being put to shame. As you look at those first three verses, you see it uh, repeated a couple of times, at least, of the idea of not being uh, ashamed of things or being embarrassed. And it's often uh, understood as being uh, that shame is a, well, embarrassment. A number of years ago, when I began working with an Indonesian church in New, New Hampshire, I found out that they have a way of of verbally showing respect, often to older people. Now, I like that. And as it turns out, uh, I was called Pak Brent, which is really prestigious in, in the uh, in Indonesian community. And my wife was called Ibu Diane. And uh, once when I was trying to demonstrate my incipient uh, Indonesian language skills, I wanted to refer to my wife, and I was going to introduce her to the larger body of Indonesians who had gathered there as my wife, Ibu Diane. But I got the letters turned around, and I called her Ubi Diane instead of Ibu Diane. And everybody started laughing. I mean, they really were just, it, it was uproarious. I mean, the way they were laughing and carrying on and 
And so finally I said, well, what did I say? And they said, ubi means sweet potato. <laughs> well, you, you know, you make those mistakes and, and um, I could have called her something worse. <laughs> but I was still embarrassed about what I had done. And I am certain that you can think back on times in your own lives when you were embarrassed. Uh, maybe you didn't know the correct answer uh, to what the teacher was, had called you to answer on and you gave the wrong answer and everybody laughed. Or children in school laughed you at, well, at you for some other reason. But we understand that kind of embarrassment. But here the idea of shame is not the idea of being embarrassed. Shame in the Bible, often in the Psalms and elsewhere, means being let down or disappointed. Boyce and other commentators suggest that being put to shame means trusting in something that in the end is proven untrustworthy. That's what it means to be put to shame or disappointed. But realize this morning that we will not be put to shame because God is, is worthy of our trust. And, and passages like Romans 5, 5 captures this idea when it says, hope does not disappoint us or shame us. And an old king or king version uh, states it this way, King James, hope maketh not ashamed. We can trust that God will not abandon us no matter what is thrown at us in this lifetime. And we're told, it's really the other way around, that our enemies are the one who will be brought before God and put to shame. And this is something that we have to ask God to help us continually to grasp, that he's worthy of our trust. And in 2024, we need to walk in that trust every day. P.C. Craigie, another really excellent to contemporary uh, commentator, tells us this, and I'm going to quote from him because he's written some great stuff. He says, this is not an easy road for us to walk. It is lined with enemies who would like nothing more than to put us to shame. And the traveler on this road is plagued with internal doubts as he recalls previous wanderings from the path and former sins. The essence of the road of the righteous is this. It is a road too difficult to walk without the companionship and friendship of God. And we can only do it when we trust in the one who will not disappoint or desert us. End quote. So we probably should not put our trust in New Year's resolutions when we tell ourselves that we're going to be better. What we need to do is trust in Christ who will apply his righteousness to us and, and we, never, we will never be disappointed by him. There's no need to look back at your sins and mistakes, even the mistakes and sins of 2023, but only look to the one who forgives you and God will make you more like himself. You only have to ask him that that could be a reality in your life. Well, David goes on in verses 4 through 10 to tell us how we can grow and trust as we walk in the correct path for this coming year. 
so we can grow in, in godly instruction. So let me read these verses again. They really are critical verses for this uh, particular passage. Verses 4 through 10. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth and my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. So as we look at this, we we recognize that important things are being said and taught. How many of you realize that this was this particular psalm is a, an acrostic? Just raise your hand if you knew that ahead of time. Okay, what is critical about an acrostic is it's a vital and important way of communicating God's truth. And that's why this particular psalm is so important. As you know, it's a, a poetic device where... Each line of stanza begins or ends with a, a set of letters, often the alphabet. Psalm 25 begins with the first Hebrew letter, Aleph, and ends with uh, Tau, the, the last uh, letter in, in the Hebrew alphabet. It's covered in all the 22 verses. And each one, most of them at least, um, cover this acrostic in a very brilliant way. And there are different ideas why uh, it's an acrostic psalm. Why did David decide to write a psalm in an acrostic style? And one idea is it simply makes the, the, the poem more interesting. And it is more interesting to see the way that, that David puts it together. In English, you know, we don't get that kind of a message because we don't have that kind of uh, approach that, that we, we, we use very much. Another thought is that using the letters of the alphabet indicate that everything is covered from A to Z or from Aleph to Tau, that this is really what's going on. It's not dissimilar uh, to how the Greek alphabet is also used when Christ is called the Alpha and the Omega, that from beginning to end, he is important and vital in our lives. Everything is found in Jesus this way. And another idea is that it's easier to, to remember if it's an acrostic and that it is a teaching device perhaps for young people. Maybe young people need that, that sort of help, and I think it's true. And this last possibility, it seems to me, is the most likely reason that the psalm is written as an acrostic. It doesn't seem to be, uh, it, well, in many ways, it seems to be a mnemonic or a, a memory device. 
And notice the words in, in this section that refer to instruction or teaching. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. Instruct sinners in the way. Lead the humble in what is right. And Jim Boyce calls these verses God's school. And we learn about God's steadfast love and faithfulness as, as well as his character. That he is the one who saves us because he is merciful. So as we go to God's school this year, and I recommend that you attend God's school, be reminded about God's steadfast love and faithfulness. Then in verses 11 through 15, let me just read those quickly. We learn more about God's pardon and and uh, forgiveness, that we need to trust in that, that we do have a need for that. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul should abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. In other words, I won't be trapped by our society. There's something energizing, I believe, about realizing the need for forgiveness. And what I mean by that is it's a motivation to respond in gratitude and love. Because once you understand that God is so willing to forgive all your sins and trespasses and and whatever you wish to call them, that he's eager to do that. It speaks to his love to you and it should motivate you to be so grateful and respond to to his love. But verse 11, as it, it comes to that, it says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. And the psalmist understands that he has a great need for forgiveness, and it's through God's name and character that we can trust that he will forgive as he has promised. Now, I'm going to tell you a little story about when I was a young seminary student. Of course, you know, you realize that if you go to seminary, you you know everything. And uh, I was still in that stage, and I was preaching in a church in, in northern New Hampshire. And after the sermon, an elderly woman, well, I call her elderly, but she was probably younger than I am at this stage in life. But anyway, she came up to me and she said, young man, I want to talk to you about something. And I, I was, you know, somewhat intimidated by that. But she asked if I believed in the victorious life. Now, that to her was a vital concern, and I was young and and new enough in ministry that my immediate thought was to say, no, I quite frankly believe in a defeated life. But I kindly resisted that temptation and instead asked her simply what she meant. And her reply was, was this. If I didn't know what it meant, then I wasn't living a victorious life. That's not exactly kind, but I think she was absolutely sincere in what she was saying. But as I spoke with her further, um, it became clear to me that that she believed that a Christian could uh, reach a place in this lifetime where they could be sinless. 
And she had reached that stage. And that's what she meant by a, a victorious life. And what she was expressing was a, a belief called perfectionism that teaches you that you can get to this place in this lifetime where you don't sin. And she was absolutely serious. And we know it isn't true. We know that we're going to sin throughout our lifetime. Certainly, 1 John 1.8 affirms this when it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And after all, why would Jesus teach his disciples, assuming that you are to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us repeatedly. That we, we need to have that forgiveness on a regular basis. Now, perhaps you're here today and you're beginning to explore Christianity and you wonder why Christians talk about sin all the time. Well, if you're thinking of sin as some spectacular mistake, such as robbing a bank, which I think that dear lady, lady so many years ago may have thought you have an incorrect view of sin. The Bible teaches us that sin is much deeper than all of this. It is that New Year's resolution that you can't keep. It's the thought that I'm going to improve doing this or doing that, or I'm, I'm never going to do that again. And we find ourselves doing just that or worse. And that's the way it works for us because we're incapable of living up to our own standard and we don't recognize the depth of our own sin. We minimize it. In one of Tim Keller's books, there's a story of a student that attended university with him. I think the school is in Pennsylvania. But the young man was, was quite promiscuous. He became a Christian, and suddenly he was studying the Bible all the time and became very moral in his behavior. People were impressed with this dramatic change in his life. But after being immersed in the Bible and theology, he began to question everyone else but himself. Somehow he felt he was the only one who was theologically and biblically aware that he was always right. It seemed unfortunate that this young man had exchanged one set of sins for another. Sin deceives us and easily ensnares us. This psalm reminds us that only when we humbly admit that we can't do it on our own and realize that we have need to have a change, a real change in our lives, we need to cry out for God's mercy and God's grace all the time. <laughs> you have to do that. Otherwise, things will not be as you think they are. Then in verse 8, we read that God is good and upright. Now, in the original, in Hebrew itself, those words could be translated, and with some of them, like James Boyce, the words could be merciful and just. Now, it's a rather shocking duo as far as theological understanding is concerned. How can God be good and just at the same time? How is that possible? How can he be merciful to us and still exercise the, 
the justice that he, that he should do to us and condemn us and you know not forgive us. Well, the only adequate answer to this dilemma is Jesus. Jesus who satisfies God's justice by bearing our punishment on the cross. His death satisfied the justice of God completely. And now in mercy allows God to forget about our sins and reach out to save us. And he changes us so as we come to him and and ask him to instruct us and help us, we are tempted to say, I'm not going to do that again. But you need to say, indeed, Christ, I need your help. And I will, or I will do it again. So pray to Christ and ask him to, to change your attitudes and actions and know that there is forgiveness and help for you. So we go on further in this particular psalm. To uh, verse 14. And this verse reminds us that that God holds his people close to him. Looking then at verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. It isn't just that God simply forgives us. The Lord actually confides in those who fear him. This means that we as believers have a special status before God. He treats us like a wonderful friend caring for us and protecting us. In the Bible, Abraham was called the friend of God in Isaiah 41. And in John 15, 15, Jesus says, These words, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father. I have made known to you. There are no secrets. So if we believe in what Jesus has done for us, we are called his friends. That's what this verse actually means. And James Hamilton, also a contemporary commentator, Speaking about this verse, writes these words. God shares his intimate secret counsel with those who fear him, causing them to know his covenant. The kind of fear in view, then, is a pious respect that respects and results in right behavior. The person who fears God does not incur God's wrath, but enjoys his favor and savors an ongoing deepening relationship with him. And these are such overwhelming words that that should give us great comfort. And I hope that you know this aspect of God's love. Because we don't talk about it all that much. The God of Christians is not some impersonal deity or a God of wrath without mercy. The God of the Bible is one who knows and cares about the details of our lives and desires to have an even deepening relationship such as our closest friend would have with us. Absolutely remarkable what this verse states. Then finally, we read that we can trust God in adversity. Let me just read that section Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Uh, 
The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, for all of his troubles. It isn't that God simply restores us and everything else. David ends this psalm by crying out to God in prayer, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Have you ever felt that way? Lonely and afflicted? I'm sure you have, if you're honest with yourself. And while these are David's words, they can be ours as well. And as we look back on this past year, and there were definitely times when we were afflicted. Were you afflicted by loneliness in your life? Were you afflicted by illness or difficult finances, broken relationships? Certainly all of us have experienced affliction, not just simply on an individual basis, but in, in a corporate basis as well. We can really identify with David in his prayer. You know, when you read a, a verse like verse 19, when David says, Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. It's like other passages that, where he talks about his enemies being out to get him. For example, in Psalm 3, he says, How many are my foes? In Psalm 7, he writes, save me from my pursuers and deliver me lest a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. He says things like this so often in the Psalms that we might be tempted to think that, that David is a little paranoid. But he really isn't. And his enemies were truly out to get him. They really wanted to kill him. After all, the, the superscription of what's written above the, the text of Psalm 3 states, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. And it wasn't just Absalom, but earlier it was, well, Goliath, if you recall. King Saul spent a lot of time chasing David all over the land. And then when Israel's enemies, both outside and inside the country, went after him, and despite all of this, David was able to write to God these words. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Wonderful words. That shows the deepest trust that you could really have where you believe he will deliver you. He then ends the Psalm 25 with the words that he really began the psalm with. And let me not be put to shame. And David was not put to shame because he trusted in God. In verse 21, he states, may integrity and uprightness preserve me. But that's sort of the thing that you need to ask God to give you that wonderful experience. May integrity and uprightness preserve me. David knew that any integrity or uprightness that he had ultimately came from God. So any goodness that 
that we have is because God in his great love reached out to us. God loves all of us who have turned our lives over to him because he sent his dear son Jesus into this world to experience the adversity that we face. Jesus faced loneliness, deprivation, physical pain, and betrayal by friends. And then experience what we experienced. Jesus died for us and now leads us in integrity and uprightness through the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And it's only through trust in him on a daily basis that we have hope and help in this new year. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, O my God, and you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. And we won't be put to shame because God, our Savior, is worthy of our trust. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we need your help in facing the trials and tribulations of life. Help us to have a trust without shame standing with you. Help us to learn from your instruction. Help us to trust in your wonderful forgiveness and grow in grace and knowledge. And finally, help us to trust you in in times of adversity. Teach us to grasp onto the spirit of Jesus, the one who set such a great example and the one who loved us and and redeemed us. What a glorious savior he is. Help us all to turn to you and say, may your integrity and uprightness preserve me. Amen.